and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 4, Versailles. What is it about Versailles? 22 kilometres southwest of Paris, UNESCO World Heritage Site? That doesn't really describe it, does it? I've lost count of the number of places I've been in Europe where I've read in the guidebook that someone or other was trying to rival or even outdo the splendours of Versailles when they built their chateau. I think it's fair to say that nobody actually managed it. But it serves as a reminder that Versailles has really been the model of splendour and madcap extravagance in castle form. Colin Jones, the author, explains this rather well in his book Versailles, writing, quote, In a matter of years after 1660, an obscure hunting lodge was transformed into a huge and magnificent set of buildings, commandingly placed in ornate gardens. For posterity, as much as for his contemporaries in France and across Europe, Versailles redefined what a royal palace should be. And a contemporary writer, one Madame de Scudery, writing something called La Promenade à Versailles, The Walk to Versailles, describes two people arriving and seeing it for the first time, as follows. What do I see? she asked, crowning magnificently the rising ground ahead of us, which commands so delightful a stretch of country. Is that what you name the little house of the greatest king on earth? Yes, I answered. That is Versailles, madame. To follow, then, a little bit of history about how the palace came to be built and some of the uses it's been put to over the centuries, and then a focus on the person who's really most associated with it, the Sun King, one Louis Fourteenth, who had it built and who set the trend for the way in which it would be a centre of extravagance and splendour and royal power. And then, to finish the episode, a little bit on what to see in the house and in the grounds. So the whole thing started in the 1620s when Louis XIII decided that this area, southwest of Paris, was an excellent place for hunting. He was out there several days a week, enjoying himself, and in the 1630s decided that he would have built a little hunting lodge, somewhere to rest and eat and take a little bit of time off riding around the countryside, killing things. It was his son, Louis XIV, who decided that on that same spot he would build a chateau, he would move himself out there eventually, along with his court of some 6,000 people, and make it really the centre of his world. Bit of a ploy to get away from Paris, when perhaps there were more people than he cared for, telling him what to do and having views on things. He would set out to Versailles, set up court there, and then have a world over which he ruled supreme. Apparently he was fond of saying to courtiers, what are people saying in Paris? Underlining the idea that he really felt he was away from all of that. So important was it to him that absolutely enormous sums of money were spent. He spent more on building Versailles than he did on doing up the whole of Paris. About six times as much, I think, which is quite something when you consider that during his reign the Louvre was built, the Tuileries Palace, the Invalides, and that for 35 years of his very long reign he was at war, spending lots of money on that too. But the absolute top priority was financing the Palace of Versailles. That notwithstanding, when he died in 1715, it wasn't finished, and it was said at the time that the whole place had been a building site for 50 years. It had in fact been Europe's biggest building site. But for all the money that was spent, it was also true that he was very keen on keeping the original little hunting lodge. Other people told him he shouldn't, it was dangerous, it was crumbling, they should take it down, and he replied, giving us an insight into his character by saying, 
If you demolish it, I will have it rebuilt in its entirety. The heyday of the palace then was from the 1680s, which was the date when Louis moved his entire court there, up until his death in 1715. But the two monarchs which followed him did carry on in sort of the same vein, equally decadent, equally keen on doing things their own way. So he was followed by Louis XV, also a great one for decadence. His treatment of his wife, for example, Queen Marie, who bore him nine children, by the way, was pretty damning. He excluded her, didn't like her much at all, really, had less and less to do with her, until the point when it was said that actually they only ever met at public events. Meanwhile, though, he had many, many mistresses, the best known of whom is probably Madame de Pompadour, who gloried in the title of Maîtresse en titre, which is an interesting title, isn't it? I dare say she revelled in the fact that she was the main mistress. On the other hand, it does rather imply that she was head of a pack and there were other mistresses, so I don't know what she felt about that. However, she set the tone for the court very much by organising so many extravagant theatre performances, concerts. She invited the infant Mozart to play here, for example. She patronised the Sèvres porcelain factory and generally saw to it that lots of extravagant things happened at court. Even this wasn't enough to keep her place because eventually, after 20 years or so, she was replaced as maîtresse en titre by one Madame du Berry. Louis XVI, who reigned from 1774 with his queen Marie-Antoinette, was also known for a very lavish lifestyle. Lots of hunting, extravagant bills for millinery. Marie-Antoinette's wardrobe was legendary, her millinery bills ginormous. They spent a lot of money too on making improvements to the estate, none of which really served to show their common touch. So, for example, they spent a lot of money on one of the lesser palaces in the grounds, the Trianon, where Marie-Antoinette liked the idea of retiring every now and then, playing at living the country life and milking the cows and so on, but the inside was decked out very expensively. With hindsight, we can say it's no surprise that what followed then was the French Revolution, and the two of them, Louis XVI and Marie-Antoinette, were the monarchs beheaded by those who wanted to see an end to the monarchy and the aristocracy. It started for them, really, on the 5th of October, 1789, when a mob from Paris arrived at Versailles and demanded that they and their children should all return to Paris. They were taken to the Tuileries Palace, where they were kept pretty much prisoners. They were seen walking in the grounds, but they certainly weren't allowed out. They did try to escape in the middle of the night at one point, but were caught after two or three days and brought back. So, after the revolution, Versailles fell into the hands of the Republicans, who quickly set about selling many of its contents to pay for their revolutionary activities. Between then and now, there are a few occasions on which the Palace of Versailles played a role in history. Napoleon set up some quarters there, for example. He had a map room in the Trianon. And in 1870, when the Germans were besieging the city of Paris, it was here, at Versailles, that they set up their headquarters. And worse still, from a French point of view, in 1871, once the French had been defeated, it was right here in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles that Wilhelm chose to have himself crowned emperor in what I think we can only describe as a national humiliation for the French. The French, however, were back in 1919 after the German defeat in World War I. You may know that the treaty which ended that is called the Treaty of Versailles and it was then again in this very Hall of Mirrors that 
draconian conditions were imposed on the defeated Germans, and the French, no doubt, feeling that things were getting back to normal. History tells us, I think, that being quite so harsh on a defeated enemy didn't in the end pay off, because the German reaction as they got themselves back on their feet led to World War II, during which, incidentally, German troops were once again stationed at Versailles. The second half of the 20th century and on to current times has really seen the transformation of Versailles to a tourist site, one of the most visited in the whole of Paris. A lot of money has been spent on it. In 1989 and 1999, there were disastrous storms said to have destroyed thousands of trees. And in 2003, one of those grand French projects was set up, this one called Grand Versailles, Grand Versailles or Great Versailles, money being thrown at it in a restoration project due to last nearly 20 years and coming to fruition then in the early 2020s said that currently, if you go to visit, you will certainly find scaffolding somewhere until they've finished this project. Okay, so that's a brief history of the building, but I want to go back to the heyday, the reign of Louis XIV, which was from 1643 to 1715, because he really is the person most associated with the Chateau of Versailles. You may be wondering what it takes to become quite so arrogant and self-indulgent and have such a sense of entitlement which makes you feel entitled to building yourself a palace such as Versailles. I think a key, key factor in all of this is the knowledge that Louis became king at the age of four and a half and was pretty much indulged then from a very young age. In a biography of Louis Fourteenth, written by Josephine Wilkinson, chapter two opens with a very nice description of the day when his mother, Anne of Austria, had to bow down to her four-year-old, who had become King of France. Quote, the little boy's face was that of a cherub, round and pale, with bright blue eyes, framed by blonde curls tied in ribbons, and a lace cap, complete with an ostrich feather. Over a floor-length gown, he wore a white apron, trimmed with lace, and adorned by a sky-blue ribbon of the Ordre du Saint-Esprit. A blue mantle, powdered with golden fleur-de-lis, was placed upon his shoulders as Anne of Austria knelt before him in homage. He was only four and a half years old, but Louis Fourteenth was King of France. A bit later on, there's a description of the lavish spectacle which was held in Paris when Louis came of age. A whole thing about trumpeters wearing black velvet trimmed with silver lace, two hundred king's light horsemen, foot soldiers, town governors, lieutenant generals. And that's just the beginning of the procession. Next came heralds on horseback, marquises, the marshals of France, who were, quote, all richly dressed and riding large horses, whose trappings were laden with gold and silver. Next along, someone called the Count of Arcourt, the Grand Equerry of France, bearing the king's sword, wearing, of course, gold and silver, followed by a host of pages and valets and bodyguards and ushers, not forgetting the mace-bearers, and eventually, eventually, the king himself. The diarist John Evelyn was there, and he wrote this description of Louis on that day. Quote, the king himself, like a young Apollo, was in a suit so covered with rich embroidery that one could perceive nothing of the stuff under it. He went almost the whole way with his hat in his hand, saluting the ladies and acclaimators who had filled the windows with their beauty, and the air with shouts of Vive le Roi. He processed all the way through Paris, across bridges, to the Sainte-Chapelle, 
where he took his seat on the lit de justice in the Grande Chambre and began his speech, heard of course in total silence, with the following words. Messieurs, I have come to my Parliament to tell you that, following the law of my state, I intend to take the government myself, and I hope by the goodness of God that it will be with piety and justice. My Chancellor will tell you more particularly my intentions. So absolutely a statement saying that he intended to be in charge. And it was about this same time that he began thinking about changing the hunting lodge into the Palace of Versailles. Everything we know about Louis seems to stress the fact that he thought a lot of himself, thought he had pretty much total power, and did exactly as he pleased. He was married to the Infanta Marie-Thérèse, with whom he had his son, Louis, who of course reigned after him, and five other children, all of whom died in infancy. But he also had numerous other children with various mistresses. With one of his early favourites, Louise de la Vallière, four children, seven with one Madame de Montespan, and a son as well with Mademoiselle de Fontange. I saw this list in a book called The Court of Versailles by Gillette Siegler, in which she dryly comments afterwards that, quote, the above list includes only the children of known favourites. It's known too, by the way, that he had an affair with his sister-in-law, Henriette, the daughter of the King of England, married to his brother, but none of that was seen by Louis as a reason why he should show any sort of reticence. I think a glimpse into his life and his personality does start to explain why it was that he felt able to build the Palace of Versailles. The extravagant court life that he liked to lead revolved around having 3,000 servants, and some aspects of his daily routine have come down the centuries as being really examples of his fondness for being the centre of everything. Perhaps particularly the two ceremonies for his getting up and going to bed every day, the lever, getting up, about 8 o'clock in the morning, and the coucher, lasting at night, were said to be attended usually by up to a 100 palace servants and courtiers and to consist of a whole series of little mini-ceremonies over exactly who would put his nightshirt on and who would snuff out his candle, etc., etc. He took all his meals in public as well, the petit couvert at lunchtime and the souper au grand couvert in the evening, a much grander affair with golden tableware and dozens of courtiers on hand to see to his every need. His many and frequent evening entertainments became legendary, Every Monday, Wednesday and Friday evening, a soirée d'appartement would be held, at which it would seem really no expense was spared. We have a lovely description of one of these, written by the Princesse Palatine, who was the Duchess of Orléans, and a great letter writer. She obviously went to some of these things, and here's some of her description. Quote, There is a large room there, where there are violins for those who wish to dance. Beyond is the royal throne room, where there are all kinds of vocal and instrumental music. Beyond, there is the royal bedroom, where three card tables have been set up for the king, his brother and the queen. Beyond that, there is a grand room, in which there are twenty gaming tables, covered with green velvet cloths and golden fringes, and then a large antechamber containing the king's billiards table. Beyond that is another large room, with four long tables with all sorts of dishes, fruit tarts, confiture, and so on. People then go onwards into a room with four tables, this time weighed down with carafe and glasses and all sorts of wines. After eating, people return to the gaming rooms. 
those who do not gamble, including myself and many others, wander round from one room to another, listening to music or watching the gaming, for one can go where one wishes. All this lasts until 10pm, at which time people go off to have supper. It does sound rather splendid, doesn't it? Although the next sentence implies that perhaps sometimes it wasn't always total pleasure for everybody. So she writes, It is certain that all this is worth seeing. It would all be magnificent and entertaining if one could bring to the occasion a happy heart. Oh dear. Apart from these rather routine celebrations three times a week, there were magnificent extravaganzas every now and then, which cost Lord only knows what. One of the early ones was held in 1664. Louis had his new mistress with him, Louise de la Valliere, and he entitled the whole festival Les Plaisirs de l'Île Enchantée, The Pleasures of the Enchanted Island, and it was three days long, jousting tournaments, dancing, pageants, firework displays, candlelit banquets, and even a new comedy ballet, commissioned from that up-and-coming new writer, Molière. A few years later, in 1668, there was another big celebration, after Louis had had a successful invasion of an area called Franche-Comté, up until then under Spanish rule. As with so many of his other big festivals, it wasn't just held in the palace, but the whole thing spilled out very much into the gardens as well. And just to give a flavour of what that could be like, here's a short description of a fireworks display held on that occasion. And the description is written by one Félibien des Avaux, who rejoices in the title of The King's Historiographer. OK, so he wrote, quote, By a prodigious transformation, the chateau appeared truly to be the Palace of the Sun. All the intersections of the avenues were suddenly illuminated by antique statues of all hues. In an instant, all the balustrades were bordered with flaming urns, which decorated and lit up at the same time the vast reaches of this superb park. Suddenly, one heard an almost heroic harmony, the explosion of a thousand fireworks, followed immediately by a thousand plumes of fire soaring up from the fountains, the woods and the shrubberies and shooting from the gaping jaws of the lizards, frogs and other animals which surrounded the ponds. I wonder how many days all those working under Louis had spent preparing that particular extravaganza. So absolutely a picture of Louis very much in control of every little detail of court life. But at the same time, you very much get a picture of an atmosphere of favour and patronage. Everybody else had to bow and scrape and try and gain the king's favour. There's a nice description in the book Versailles, written by Colin Jones, of one moment which makes this very clear. So he wrote, quote, As the king swept past in the Hall of Mirrors, courtiers jockeyed restlessly for position. In the Chambre du Roi, distinguished families competed for the opportunity for one of their number to be accorded a favour, holding the king's shirt for him to don, for example, or grasping the candle, lighting his way to bed. That might seem pifflingly banal, but which was loaded with honour and therefore potential for patronage in Louis's ceremonial regime. There are lots of little details which reveal that actually all wasn't splendid for everybody. The servants, for example, were in very cramped conditions. And, basic as it sounds, the atmosphere was ruined by the fact that there weren't nearly enough toilets to go round. The architect, Viollet-le-Duc, commented on the terrible stench that ensued because people relieved themselves in the corridors. And even in the 1660s, a whole hundred and something years before the French Revolution, 
there were people who were very aware of the waste of money and the extravagance that Louis indulged in. One of these was the Marquis de Saint-Maurice, who wrote that 500,000 livres had been spent on the fireworks at the event I was just describing, and who thought, probably along with other people, that, quote, everyone says the king would have done better to give this money to demobilise soldiers. The Marquis went on to complain about the vast amount of money he himself had had to spend to, as he put it, adorn himself and his wife and his daughter and his grandchildren so that they could all go and be seen at one of these events at Versailles. And he put it like this, quote, I have never spent money so uselessly. I console myself with the thought that when one is among madmen, one must be mad oneself. Surely there must have been a lot of people quietly wondering whether some of this money could not have been better spent. And the idea is brought home particularly in a poignant little story told by Madame de Sévigny, another great diary writer of the time, who explains a story she'd been told about a poor craftsman in the centre of Paris who was in terrible trouble because he owed ten écus in tax and did not have the money to pay it. And this is what she wrote. Quote, they came and seized his humble possessions, a bedstead and a porringer. Seeing himself destitute, he went mad with rage and despair and cut the throats of three of his children who were in the room. His wife was rescued and the fourth child escaped. He will be hanged in a few days. And while, as we know, all this came home to roost for later generations of Louis's family, he himself remained resolute that he would do whatever he liked. One contemporary wrote that, quote, when the king desires anything, he would allow no one to reason with him. His orders must be obeyed immediately and without question. He was too much accustomed to, such is our pleasure, to suffer any suggestions. So, that's a little insight into Louis. Let's turn our attention to the palace itself. The actual palace of Versailles, the other smaller palaces in the grounds, the Grand and Petit Trianon, the formal gardens close by, the parkland surrounding it, in short, the whole territory that was Louis. If you go to visit, there are a few rooms that you can go into by yourself, but to see most of the palace, you do need to go on a guided tour. And if you want to do that, and don't want to queue forever, probably best to book it online before you get anywhere near the crowds. Of all the rooms inside, I'm just going to pick out two or three to talk about, the ones that you really should see and certainly won't ever forget. And the absolute highlight of everything, of course, is the Galerie des Glaces, the Hall of Mirrors, of which Louis was so proud. 70 metres long, I've seen some guidebooks say actually it's a corridor, but it is quite some corridor, because it has 17 high windows all the way down its length, which were designed specially to look out over that gorgeous garden, and on the opposite wall, 17 vast mirrors, built to show off that new product just coming along in the 17th century, which most people couldn't afford, but which Louis could have lots of, namely glass. Hence the windows, hence the mirrors. No question that it's a beautiful room in the daytime, but it was designed to be even more spectacular of an evening, when it would be shimmering in the light of, wait for it, 4,000 candles. Goodness knows how long it took the courtiers to light that lot. But they would really set the windows and the mirrors and the gilded statues and the strategically placed silver furniture all of that will be lit up to look its absolute best, and to become, as Louis hoped, of course, the talk of Europe. The ceilings, 12 metres high, painted with pictures to represent Louis's various battle victories, 
and right in the middle himself as the Sun King, victorious of course, with gods and fauns and creatures all around him to show him off in true splendour, but also, crucially, to bring home the fact that he was very powerful. This is quite well explained in Jacqueline Wilkinson's biography, where she writes that, quote, perhaps the most poignant representation is le roi gouverne par lui-même. That means the king himself governs. The first to be painted, it depicts Louis taking power into his own hands, so that he's master not only in France, but in all of Europe. He wears the blue coronation robes of France over classical armour. Above, a woman representing glory holds out a crown of stars to the king, whose eyes are fixed only upon her, his hand reaching out to receive the crown, while the lovers, gods, goddesses and nymphs that surround him are ignored. Nothing can equal the beauty of this gallery of Versailles, wrote Madame de Sévigny to her daughter. This sort of royal beauty is unique in the world. Surely just the reaction that Louis was hoping for. Some of the other grandest rooms that you'll probably want to visit are the King's and Queen's State Apartments, the Grand Appartement du Roi et de la Reine, which can also be described as over the top and then some. Think frescoes, marble, gold, carvings, Greek and Roman mythology. And in Louis' throne room, known as the Salon d'Apollon, a portrait of him as the god Apollo, to underline his importance, his glory, and his role as almost a god in his own kingdom. When you go to the Queen's bedroom, equally fabulously decorated, you might like, when looking at the vast bed, to think that that is where 19 royal babies were born in full public view. Ministers and important courtiers would be invited along to witness the whole spectacle, mainly, really, so that everybody could be sure that the baby which ensued really was the Queen's child. You can visit the Salon de Venus and see the marble statue of Louis XIV as creator of the whole of Versailles. You can go to the Chapelle Royale, a double-floored church where the royals worshipped upstairs in the gallery with their very carefully chosen favourites, while the slightly less favourites would be downstairs. And I think it's fair to say that in every single room you'll be very aware of the grandeur, the elegance, the importance of the royals. So much for the building then. The building is set in formal gardens. Beyond that is what's known as the Petit Parc, about 1,700 hectares of parkland. And beyond that, the Grand Parc, which is land that's been bought up by the various Louis here and there, including villages, and around which a wall was built about 25 miles long, so that it created an enclosure of really wild land in which the royals could hunt. I imagine most people don't get much further than the formal gardens, and even those are quite big. A grand allée in the middle, lots of other straight paths. Two canals, a grand canal, one and a half kilometres long, carefully positioned exactly so that it would reflect the setting sun every evening. And a petit canal built across it. Glorious fountains with names like the Bassin de Neptune and the Bassin d'Apollon. An orangerie built in 1663 because new exotic plants were just arriving in France as the era of exploration bore fruit. And, of course, if you were going to keep your orange trees alive, you would have to build an orangerie to put them in. A sort of old-fashioned conservatory, I think, really. A lovely building where it would be nice to spend some time and relax. Louis took the creation of the garden very, very seriously. So seriously that having appointed his favourite gardener, André Le Nôtre, he sent him 
at the age of 60, off to Italy, where gardens were reputed to be really very beautiful, so that he could steal ideas and bring them back to France and try them out at Versailles. Several hundred terrassiers were appointed to do the digging and heavy lifting, a team of other designers and gardeners, and the whole thing became a prototype for a French formal garden at its very best, in the same way that the chateau really was a template for everyone who came afterwards who wanted to build something very showy. So the gardens were seen as the way it should really be done. The gardens were quite formal. They were about getting nature under control, really. Symmetry, straight pathways, geometrically shaped parterre and flower beds, box hedging, shrubs cut into beautiful shapes. A big emphasis on water effects, sculptures, follies, statues. An English traveller, one Ellis Verriard, very much liked what he saw and wrote about what an enormous project it must have been, writing, for example, quote, The waterworks far exceed those so much boasted in Italy. The most perfect and famous artificier have been called from all parts and are daily employed in this stupendous work. And I think, at least from Louis's point of view, all of this paid off because his garden was perhaps the thing of which he was the most proud. So much so that he wrote his own guidebook to it. In fact, he wrote six different versions every time new things were introduced. A new version would be needed and he would write it personally. He went to the gardens almost every day when he was at the chateau and he loved to show visitors round. Even as he got older and was restricted by gout and couldn't move very well, he wasn't going to be stopped. He had a little wheelchair constructed so that he could still get around the grounds and take people with him and show off all the things that he was so proud of. So there you have it, the Palace of Versailles. Inside and out, just splendid. Massive, impressive, a memorial to the glories of 17th and 18th century France. Perhaps most of all, a memorial to the self-regard of her kings and queens, at that era at least. And quite a big hint to how it was that, by the end of the 18th century, France had decided to overthrow their royalty and their aristocracy and have a revolution. The revolution, in fact, being the subject of next week's episode. We'll have a look at revolutionary Paris, the stories behind it, the places you can visit in Paris today, such as the Conciergerie, the Place de la Concorde, and the Musée Carnavalet, which will tell you something about those turbulent times. That's to come then, but for the moment, let's leave behind the splendours of Versailles. Allow me to thank you very much for listening today. Merci bien to hope that you will join me next week, la semaine prochaine, and to say goodbye in French, of course. Au revoir.